0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9. This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off in the story last week, which was the conversion of Saul, how Saul became a Christian at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Saul, who was the number one enemy of of the church and considered his life mission uh, to persecute the church, and in a moment 's instance, like one, just in the twinkling of an eye, just that, that momentary uh, the flashing of, of the light, the appearance of Jesus, the resurrected king <coughs> saul 's life is turned upside down, and uh, he learns to walk with Jesus in a new way, so we 're going to continue looking at the the early life of saul, and there 's this huge period of time, um, probably over ten years. Where we know almost nothing uh, about what happened in Saul's life between when he became uh, a Christian and when he left on his first missionary journey, some ten years later, there's there's a gap there, and um, the little bit of information we have about it comes from Galatians and uh, comes from First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, excuse me, and comes from this this portion of of Acts, and there's just these little clues as to what was happening. And there's some really cool things there, so I wanted to, to give this morning um, the chance to, for us to explore what it was like for Saul, to the best of our ability, um, when he first became a Christian, what, what that was like, and what he learned, and what God did in his life. So if you'll stand, uh, I'm going to read Acts chapter 9. Let's stand together for the reading of the word. And I'm actually going to read the conversion story again uh, at the beginning. So I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read through uh, verse 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Saul that gives us such great encouragement and joy to see what you did in his life. The same types of things that you're doing in our lives and in our community today, God. Help us learn uh, what you would have us learn and and glean from your word what you would have us glean. I pray that the body of Christ would be built up and encouraged and strengthened uh, through this word this morning. Let we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. You can be seated. If you remember from last week, we looked at two words at the beginning and the end of the sermon. And there are two common words in the scriptures. The first is confession. And the second is repentance. And I offered a definition and a little bit of teaching around confession that I think is very important for us to understand what God was doing in the life of Saul. And here's the definition that I would offer again for confession. The the best definition that I've come across for the word confess is to see as God sees. That's what it means to confess. You see just like God sees. So that has a a negative side, not negative bad, but it has the side where you're confessing sin, um, which means you're seeing your sin as God sees it. So you look back on your life and the things you've done and the ways you've fallen short and and failed, and you take those situations and you hold them up in the light of Christ and you say, when I look back on this, I recognize because of your example and your word, Jesus, and the Spirit within me, that when I said this, when I did this, when I didn't do this, whatever the situation was, that that was not right. It was sin. So what, what are you doing in that situation? You're saying, I am choosing to see my action in the same way that you see this action. So, to see as God sees is to confess. Now, there's the positive side to it, and I would actually um, encourage you that the positive side of confession actually carries a, a unique significance in the walk of discipleship with Christ that really has a lot of power. Uh, to cause us to grow up in him. And when we neglect the positive side of confession, we miss out on a significant portion of our discipleship. And the positive part of confession is this, to see Jesus as God sees Jesus. That's confession. That's why we call Peter's confession a confession. What is Peter's confession? When he looks at Jesus and, and Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. The Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. That's Peter's confession. He's not not saying Peter's confession isn't a list of wrong things he did. Peter's confession is looking at Jesus and Peter sees Jesus as God sees Jesus. And Jesus says this because he says, blessed are you, Peter, because this knowledge did not come from flesh and blood, but it was revealed to you by God. In other words, you're seeing me as God, the Father, sees me. That's confession. Paul talks about this in multiple places. Um, Philippians 2 is one of those positive examples. James chapter 5 is one of those examples where we are to confess our sins. So James writes, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. That's That's the looking at sin as God looks at it. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Therefore God elevated him, speaking of Christ, to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of (coughs) Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, same word in Greek, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see these two things play out in very significant ways in Saul's early uh, life as a Christian. He, he has in his mind exactly who he thinks Jesus is, and who he thinks the Christians are. They're heretics. In his mind, they're heretics, and actually, uh, if you remember the teaching from last week, Saul is more convinced that the Christians are a greater threat to the Jewish people than even the Romans are. He's more worried about the Christians because they're a threat from the inside. He sees them as idolatrous, they are worshiping a false god, even though they are Jews. And so he is zealous. That's the that important word about the description of, of Saul. He is zealous for God in such a way that he's going he's to kill all the Christians he can find. But on the road, Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, shows up to him. It flips Saul's understanding upside down. And now he's going to confess Christ. In the same way that Peter did. Now he's going to confess Christ in the same way that all disciples, true disciples of Jesus, confess him. Which is to see Jesus as God sees Jesus. No longer is Saul going to see Jesus as an enemy of God. From this point forward, Saul sees Jesus as the anointed Messiah. The son of God. And of course, repentance means to turn and walk the opposite direction. Saul is going to persecute Christians and kill them. And what do we read in this passage we just read this morning? Instead of persecuting Christians, what does he do? He begins preaching. He begins building up the church and proclaiming. I don't know that you can turn and walk in a more opposite direction than going to kill someone to becoming their their loudest (laughs) uh, encouragement and and source of that. So it's important to see this. And um, I think it's also important for us to remember these definitions in our own lives because the Lord desires for you to confess your sins to one another, me, to confess my sins to one another. We are to confess our sins, but we are also to daily confess Christ in every place that God calls us, whether it's uh, in our neighborhood or at our work or at our school. We are to confess Christ to, to say, behold the Lamb of God. That's, that's John the Baptist's confession. Behold the Lamb of God. He's seen him like God sees him. We are to do that same thing throughout our own lives. All right, here's, um, here's kind of the theme for the morning, and I already gave it away in Proverbs chapter 4. But uh, this, is, this is the theme as we look at the story of Saul in, in these verses, that we are who we say we are. And this is what I mean. How we see ourselves, so how you and I see our own, our own hearts and lives, uh, in great part, determines how we live. So if my self-view is that I'm a failure... If that's what I believe about myself, then guess how I'm going to live as a failure. Because that's what I believe about myself. And ultimately, I'll actually self-sabotage. I'll actually, whether or not I I think I'm doing this, I will self-sabotage to ensure that I fail. Because that's my belief about myself. But God is neither glorified nor impressed with your self-hatred. Let me say that again. When, it, when I, I felt very strongly that I was supposed to say that this morning. God is not impressed with the way that you hate yourself. So when you speak negatively about yourself, to yourself, I'm just that, or I'm just that, or I'm a this, I'm a that, that does not impress God, nor does it glorify him. In fact, what I would suggest is that what God would say is, don't talk about my child that way. Because would you say that about anyone else in Christ? Purchased by God? Would you say that about them? If you did, there's a problem. (laughs) So why would you say that to yourself, whom God loves as deeply and as passionately in Christ, as your brother or sister. God is not impressed with your false humility. That does not give glory to God. That is not the kind of humility that is Christ-like. Jesus believed that he was who God said that he was. And we are to live in the same way. We are who God says we are. Or as, we've been, singing, as a, we've been singing this as a church lately, right? I am who you say that I am. I'm not who I say that I am. Not in Christ. I am who God says that I am. Now this plays out, this, this principle plays out in our lives all the time. So what are, what are the list of negative things that you think about yourself? So um, it could be a characteristic or a trait. It could be failure. It could be, um, I don't have integrity. Well, if you're going to label yourself that way and speak that over your own spirit, I don't have integrity, I'm not a person with integrity, then when you come to a situation that requires integrity, you have a belief about yourself that you've already agreed to in your own heart and spirit. And so you're going to agree to that deceit about yourself and you're going to live it out. This isn't some self-help teaching to say that you don't have anything wrong with you. That's not what I'm saying. You certainly struggle with sin. I certainly struggle with sin. But here's the better, healthier, more Christ-gospel-centered way to talk about the things that we struggle with. Rather than, I am a person without integrity, it's this. Jesus, when I look at this thing honestly, and I look back on my life, I struggle with integrity. That's, that's a real struggle with me. That's a, that's a real problem in my life, that, that I struggle with integrity. So here, here's this thing. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to look at it like you look at it. But I'm going to take a step further and, and look at your word and realize that is not who you call me. That's not what you say about me. So when you look at me, you don't say, you are a person without integrity. It's not how God looks at me and speaks about me. Rather, how God looks and speaks about me is you are my adopted son called to live rightly, righteously, with integrity. And so when I believe that and I agree with that, I confess it, and I begin to agree with God in my spirit and speak that over myself, Then when I come to the situation that requires integrity, that's a difficult situation, because I've agreed and confessed the word of God, agreeing with what God says rather than what I say, I actually have the internal strength and fortitude to walk out the situation with integrity. So it's very, very important for us as we... Look inward, and I would invite you to look inward this morning in your own life and think about what are the negative things that I tend to say about myself. What are those, what are those, those things that I say about myself? Look, a lot, of, a lot of people, honestly, like, and I've said this many times in my life without even meaning to, like, when I fail at something or I feel like I fall short, like, oh, I hate myself. Come on, you've said that. I hate myself. You're speaking about a child of God adopted by Jesus when you say that. And like I already said, you would never say that about someone else. And when you speak that, that is not impressive to God, nor is that glorifying or worshiping. Or worshiping the Lord. We are who we say we are. We, 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 we end up living what we declare about ourselves. And so our identity in Christ is foundational to the way that we live. Your understanding of who you are in Christ will determine the way that you live. Guard your heart above all else, for it will determine the course of your life. Guard What your heart takes in. Guard how you speak to your heart. Guard what's being labeled there and what's being identified, what's being agreed to because it will determine the course of your life. What is the piece of the armor of God that God puts in the Spirit of God over your heart? Breastplate of righteousness. So what God guards your heart with In Christ is righteousness. So when God looks at you and he sees his armor around you and he sees his son within you because of his work, he sees righteousness. And those with a righteous heart, guess what they get to see? Blessed are the pure in heart. They see God. Guard your heart above all else. It will determine the course of your life. All right. What does this have to do with today? I think it has everything to do, because Saul is going through a redefinition, period. God is redefining Saul's self-understanding, and it is going to determine how he lives out the rest of his life. So if we don't understand this redefinition process, we're going to miss the significance and wonder, how did Saul get from living this life to all of a sudden writing these epistles ten years later? God did a defining work in his heart. He, he redefines Saul in significant ways and then Saul lives it out because we are who God says we are and we live what we believe. So how did, how did Saul see himself? B.C., how Saul saw himself was, we, we, this is what we looked at significantly last week. He sees himself as a Pharisee. He sees himself as zealous for the Torah, and he sees himself as the persecutor of the church. And I won't go too far in depth, but it's a helpful reminder that what that zealousness meant was he saw himself like Phineas and like Elijah. And Phineas and Elijah, both men are described in the Scriptures as zealous for God, and their zealousness for God leads them to political and violent action to stamp out idolatry in Israel. So Phine- Phineas takes his spear and he pierces uh, the Jewish man sleeping with the Moabite woman, and God ends the plague that had come on the Israelite camp because Phineas was zealous for the Lord. And in the Psalms, uh, one of the psalmists looks back on Phineas and says about him that Phineas was considered righteous because of his zealous passion. For the Lord Elijah, the same thing. Elijah was passionately zealous for the Lord. He gathers the prophets of Baal up on the top of the mountain, and they have the showdown. And then, after God sends heaven or sends fire from heaven and burns up the sacrifice, uh, Elijah takes a sword and kills all of the prophets of Baal. And so Saul sees himself as in the line of Phineas, and he sees himself. This is what he's saying about himself: "I am zealous for the Lord." So what's going to happen with his actions if that's what he's defining himself as? Is he going to kill Christians? That's, that's the definition, the self-definition inevitably leads to the course of action that we take. So Saul is zealous for God and he sees them as idolaters in the camp and so he's going to get a spear and he's going to pierce them through so God doesn't destroy Israel with another plague. Now in Christ, Saul's Identity is redefined by Jesus. But some of it remains the same. Because I think any of us who have read 1 Corinthians, any of us who have read Romans would still say that Saul was, Paul, you know, later in life, he's still a pretty zealous person, is he not? He's, he's still pretty passionate about God. That, that zealousness remains. But the, the focus of the zealousness shifts off of Torah law and it shifts on to Messiah. Jesus. And so where once Saul would say, I was zealous for the Torah, I was zealous for the law, now Saul says, I am zealous for the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, whenever whenever the New Testament has the word Christ, that's what that means, Messiah. It means anointed one. And so all the times that, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes, we are in Christ, or Christ set us free, or Christ, what he's saying. In his Jewish Hebrew mind, what he's saying is Messiah. We are in Messiah. We are set free by Messiah. Our identity is in Messiah. That's that's the anointed one of Jesus. So he's zealous for the Messiah. I think this is a little bit misunderstood about Saul, often, or or little understood. But I I would propose to you that from this day forward, he sees himself as a prophet. We think of Saul as, as an apostle, and that's right. But I think that one of the main ways... Um, And this this comes from people much smarter than me. But one of the main ways that Saul thinks of himself this this day forward is actually as a prophet, particularly in the mode of Jeremiah and Isaiah. So he sees himself as a prophet of the Messiah announcing the new covenant, the new kingdom uh, in Christ, in the Messiah in Jesus. He also sees himself as an apostle of the Messiah. So he's a messenger of the anointed one. And he sees himself as an adopted son of God. And how beautifully and how richly and how often he wrote about this. That we are adopted children of God. And this becomes the way that he views himself. So if he views himself as a son of God, then he's going to live as a son of God. If he views himself as a prophet of the Messiah, then he's going to live prophetically under the kingdom of the Messiah. If he views himself as an apostle of of the Lord, and this is what he believes about himself. Then he's going to live as an apostle. If he views himself as zealous for the Messiah, then he's going to live. And then God is redefining these things and stamping these things deeply on Saul, and it determines the course of his life. It's important what we say and think about ourselves. Very important. This is in Galatians. I'm sorry, it's a little bit small. But in Galatians chapter 1, Saul is writing back. This is some 10 years later that he's writing this this epistle to the Galatians. And he explains to them, Even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Now you Old Testament scholars, that should remind you of a prophet. Who's the prophet of Israel that talked about being formed in the womb by God, set apart for the prophetic ministry? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So, Paul literally takes that same phrase and puts it on himself. Before I was born, God chose me and called me by His marvelous grace. Then it pleased Him to reveal His Son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, this is really interesting what it says here. When this happened... I did not rush out to consult with any human beings, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Now, Acts doesn't talk about this at all. But after Saul comes to Christ, apparently he makes a little journey into the wilderness for some amount of time, He comes back to Damascus. He's almost killed. He's let down through the wall. And that's when he goes to Jerusalem. So there's this whole thing that happens in Arabia before he ever goes back to Jerusalem and meets the apostles. And I think this is really important to understanding Saul. So here's his uh, basic journey at this point. He goes from Jerusalem with letters up to Damascus. And he meets Jesus somewhere along the road here. He becomes a Christian, and he spends some time in Damascus. And this map has Arabia over here, but that's probably not uh, where Saul went. I I would say over here, I'm going to show you another map, down here in the Sinai Peninsula is where he probably went. So he then goes down, makes a journey. He returns back to Damascus. Then he goes down to Jerusalem, and at the end of the chapter to Caesarea, and then back to his hometown of Tarsus, where he is for about 10 years before Barnabas goes up and gets him and brings him to Antioch. Now, the significance of this is interesting because here is uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and Damascus is up here in uh, in modern-day Syria, and it says in Galatians, he writes that, I did not rush down to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles, but first I went into Arabia, into the wilderness, and this was all considered part of Arabia back then and into the Sinai Peninsula. And what's significant about the Sinai Peninsula is this place right there. And can you read that? What's there? Mount Sinai. Who else went to Mount Sinai? Moses? Who else? Abraham? Elijah? And, and Saul sees himself as a prophetic pic- picture... Receiving the New covenant, and so um, what what NT Wright and others believe happened is that Saul goes to Mount Sinai during this time to confirm whether or not this is actually is this true because it 's against everything that he believed that Jesus would be the messiah. You, everything he believed was that the Messiah would be a political leader, would be a political leader that would overthrow the Romans and establish the eternal kingdom of Jerusalem. And here was a Messiah that was crucified, that was not popular, that was not militarily victorious, that did not usher in a new Israelite kingdom. And so this is against everything that he believed the Messiah would be. And that had to be a massive identity crisis. That had to be a Like a huge loss of identity that happened in that place. Now, if you remember the story of Elijah, after he kills the prophets of Baal, you remember he goes down the mountain and he meets Jezebel. And do you remember what Jezebel says to him? Yeah, you're not going to see tomorrow morning. You will not see the sunrise tomorrow morning. You're a dead man. And so Elijah runs off into the wilderness and he cries to God, I'm the last one. There's no one left. I've been zealous for you. There's there's nobody left. And God says, God says, um, eat for the journey. So he sends ravens to feed him and he he feeds Elijah. And then then the story is that Elijah runs for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water through the wilderness. Without stopping. And where does Elijah go? He went down to Mount Sinai. So Elijah after the, After the confrontation with Baal, when he runs through the wilderness, he runs down to Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai is where God revealed himself to the Israelites when they were coming out of slavery, and they gave and he gives the Mosaic covenant. Elijah goes back and god 's not in the earthquake or in the fire he 's not in the storm or the wind, the mighty the mighty wind, rather it says God was in the still small whisper of the voice he said he gave Elijah. Two things to do. Elijah was to anoint the new prophet, which was Elisha. I know that's confusing. Elijah anoints Elisha to carry up the prophetic mantle. And he was to anoint the new king. Um, Actually, two new kings. And so Elijah then goes down from the mountain and he anoints the new uh, prophet. And he anoints the two new kings. And then he's taken up in the chariot of fire into heaven. Saul, going down into the wilderness, he's being reworked by God. His whole identity is becoming new in Christ. Everything is changing and being redefined. And God gives him very specific instructions in his apostolic ministry. He is to be a messenger of the new king, the anointed one. The king that's been anointed by God, just like Elijah, he's to be a messenger of the king. And he is to be the suffering servant. Of, of Christ, and I talked about this last week as well, that one of the ways that uh, Paul views himself is as the suffering servant. So this uh, leads us back to chapter 9, and I'm going to pick up in the story, and then I'm going to uh, comment on it as we go through to fill in some more of the gaps. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. And the Jews in Damascus could not refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. All right, I have this picture in my head of this season in Saul's life. Have you ever seen someone who's really athletic in one sport pick up a new sport for the first time? Like, like someone who's played uh, soccer their whole life, and and is a really, really good soccer player. They've never touched a basketball, but they have all these developed skills as an athlete. They know how to pass. They know how to see the field. They know how to run and jump and all of that stuff. And then they start to play a new sport, and at first it's a little bit awkward because it's a new set of skills, and yet they pick it up faster than the normal person would because they've developed all of these muscles and all of these uh, abilities over the years. And this is a little bit what's happening with Saul. So he's got all of these spiritual muscles that God has developed in his life. He knows how to read the Torah. He knows how to pray. He knows how to think along the lines of the ancient Jewish prophets. He knows the scriptures backwards and forwards. He knows all this stuff. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes in and totally changes the game about how he reads the scriptures. And I love this description that he became more and more powerful. It's like this amazing athlete at one sport, and this new sport comes on the table that he's never even seen or heard of, and he picks it up, and daily, because he's already got all this stuff that God has developed in him, he gets better and better and, and more powerful and more powerful, and you can see the Spirit of God coming alive and saw in new ways. It's a beautiful description. So he's becoming so powerful now that the very people he was going to support in killing the Christians decide, we better take those letters that were were from Saul, and we better apply them to Saul. So, in in other words, he carried his own death sentence to Damascus, which is very interesting. Carries his own death sentence to Damascus, and this same this same uh, situation is going to play out thirty times in Saul's life. He shows up in a new place. He goes to the synagogues. He begins to preach the gospel. God reveals himself powerfully through the message of the gospel. The Jews get jealous, uh, the the Roman leaders get jealous, and they try to kill him. So this is the first time it happens in his life, but it's a pattern that repeats. So during the night, verse 25, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall, which had to be a strange sight. Now, Galatians chapter 1, this is where this comes back in. Because this is where he says... When this happened, when he came to Christ, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. So, so before he's lowered down into the basket, that's when he goes down to Mount Sinai, or the wilderness of Arabia. Now, when he escapes, when he's at Damascus the second time, and he escapes for his life, Then he goes to Jerusalem. So, verse 28 of chapter 9 says So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So, he begins to do the same thing in Jerusalem. He debated with some Greek speaking Jews, that's the Hellenists, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea and Galilee, Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. And this uh, little phrase is a continuing theme in the beginning of Acts, where the Lord protects the church and it increases in number. The Lord protects the church and increases in number. What's really kind of ironic and humorous about about this situation is, is Saul was the biggest pain to the church previously because he was actively persecuting Christians. Now he becomes a pain to the church in a new way. Rather than actively persecuting, he's actively inviting persecution into the church. And you can kind of imagine the leaders of Jerusalem who are trying to kind of keep a low profile at this point. Because they've gone through a lot. Uh, they've, they've, been in, they've been imprisoned. And they've been beaten for the sake of Christ. And, and there's this period of peace right now. And the, in fact their main enemy has come to Christ. And it's put them in a very awkward spot. Because now this guy who was a big pain before. Is now a big pain but for a totally new reason. But they love him as a brother in Christ. And you can kind of see him trying to like what do we do with this guy. So they take him to the seaport of Caesarea, and then they ship him out to his hometown in Tarsus. <laughs> Let him go there. <laughs> and it says, this is so interesting, I think this was definitely the will of God for this period, that the church had peace. They needed, they needed to catch their breath. They needed a moment, like a baby needs time to sleep as it's growing. Ch- children re- require 10 hours of sleep a night because they're growing. The church required a season of rest and peace in its infancy so it could grow. And it says that it did. Now in Acts chapter 22, this is the second telling of of Saul's conversion. He talks about leaving Jerusalem. And and Jesus actually shows up to him in in a second revelation that we hear about. It says, after I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance. And I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. But Lord, I argued, they certainly know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And I was killed in complete agreement with your witness, Stephen, when he was killed. I stood by and kept the coats they took off when they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So we know that Jesus appeared to Saul a number of times. And this is really early on. This is after he wandered in Arabia, when he came down to Jerusalem, before he flees, before the apostles sent him out again, Jesus shows up to him when he was praying in the temple and says, Go, I'm, I'm sending you. I'm the one who's behind them telling you to leave and, and going to, uh, back to Tarsus. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. So this is, again, the map. He went from Damascus down into the wilderness, back to Damascus, down to Jerusalem, And then when there was a plot to kill him there, they took him to the port city of Caesarea and he took a boat up to his hometown in Tarsus where he spends, there's 10 silent years now. So this is roughly 36 to 46 AD, the 10 silent years of Saul's life in in Tarsus. And there's a few things that we know, um, but not many. So presumably, he worked as a tent maker. So he picked up his father's trade, uh, which was tent-making. We know this because this is how he supports himself uh, in his own ministry. Jewish rabbis were not paid. They had to work to support themselves. So it's highly doubtful that Saul, as an apostle, thought he was going to get paid uh, as an apostle. And so um, he does receive support from some of the churches, but throughout his ministry we know that he also supported himself himself. Through this trade of tent making. And so, what was he doing during these 10 years? He was working, just like you. He was in the marketplace, daily going to his job, making deals and selling and talking to people and, and living a normal life. We also can be pretty sure that he continued to read the scriptures. Now, at this time, what were the scriptures? Is the Old Testament. And so, as he's engaging the scriptures, he's reading the Torah. He's rereading Genesis, this time with Jesus in the story. He's rereading Exodus, and oh my goodness. You know if you read the Exodus story and you think about Jesus as the Passover lamb, how that story changes? He's reading about the Israel wandering in the wilderness and in Leviticus, and do you know how the story of the scapegoat in the Day of Atonement comes alive when you read Jesus into it for the first time? So this is happening in Saul's life for the first time that he's rereading these stories. And oh my goodness, lo and behold, Jesus is at the beginning when God promises that, that the Son of Man would stomp on the serpent's head. And Jesus shows up. Uh, as the brother who loved, who's his brother keeper when, when Cain and Abel have their mess. And Jesus shows up in the flood. And Jesus shows up in the covenants all throughout the Old Testament. So Saul is collecting all of this new information, reading Christ into the scriptures for the first time. He's rethinking his understanding of the biblical story and redemptive history. And Paul continued to engage Gentile culture in the context of the cosmopolitan city of Tarsus. But now... In new ways. So um, N.T. Wright writes about this period in a really helpful way. I was going to read one quote from that. Speaking of this time in Tarsus. The silent years. He says for Saul. With the vision of Genesis the Psalms and Isaiah close to his heart. There would be no question of retreat from the world. So Saul never runs from the world. He actually engages the culture of the world powerfully and openly listen to this if the stoics which is a greek philosophy had a big integrated vision of a united world so did he if the roman empire was hoping to create a single society in which everyone would give allegiance to the single lord so was he paul believed that this had already been accomplished through israel's messiah if the, if the Platonists, those who followed the teaching of Plato, were, were speaking of possible commerce between heaven and earth, so was he. But his vision was of heaven coming to earth, not of souls escaping earth and going to heaven. As a Jew, he believed that the whole created order was the work of the one God. He was a Messiah man. He believed that the crucified and risen Jesus had dwelt, dealt with the evil that corrupts the world and the human race, and that he had begun the long-awaited project of new creation, of which the communities of baptized and believing Jesus followers were the pilot project. So while Paul, who's still called Saul, I know this is confusing, is in Tarsus during this ten years, all of these things are happening. He's still engaging with the Greek philosophies of the day. He's still reading his Torah, but now with a totally new understanding of, of the Old Testament. And he's working. There's one other thing that we know took place during this time, and it's one of the most interesting passages in the New Testament. And it comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Saul, writing back about this time, says this to the Corinthians. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. you recognize this passage? He says, I know a man in Christ, which is a really awkward way to talk about yourself, But he's talking about himself. He's talking about himself in the third person. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, so that would have been when he was in Tarsus. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So Saul was given secrets by Jesus that he's not even allowed to share about the glories of heaven, the glories of God's presence. He says, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weakness. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan. So the thorn in the flesh, this very famous passage about Saul's thorn in the flesh, this happened during this ten silent years when he was in Tarsus. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, all of this stuff has already happened. These revelations, Jesus appearing to him, these revelations where he was swept up into the third heaven, the thorn in the flesh. All of this happens before Saul is commissioned on his first missionary journey. So God is putting in place all of these identities that God's strength comes through weakness, not through human strength. That he is to suffer for the sake of the Messiah, that, that, that he's a prophetic apostle. And so these things that God is, is speaking over him that become his identity, he's going to live out. The other thing we can see is that as his mature thought develops in Christ, when he's writing Galatians, when he's writing First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, when he's writing these epistles, he's not making it up on the spot. This is stuff it can seem like it because he he rambles right, and there's run on sentences that last verse after verse without a period. Come on, put a period, <laughs> put a period so we can take a breath and and so it can it can have a, a thought that it can feel like he's just spitballing, and he certainly had a gift uh, to be able to speak on the spot, but he um, he had developed the Lord had developed all this stuff deeply in him, and so when he's writing romans it's it's after years and years of sitting and praying and reading and thinking and uh, as his theology develops. All right, I know this was way more teaching than I typically do as far as teaching like background, historical, cultural. But we have to do the hard work of of looking at this stuff if we're going to understand the context from which it was written. Because why he writes the things in... Galatians, as you're reading Galatians on your own in, in your quiet time. This helps us understand why he wrote the things he wrote. When you're reading First and Second Corinthians, when you're reading about his story throughout the rest of Acts, if we don't understand the context, can you imagine just trying to watch the third Lord of the Rings without ever reading the books or watching The Hobbit or the first two movies? And some of you who have never engaged that. Pick a different series. If you just pick a movie... And it's the seventh one out of a long series of movies. You're going to miss all kinds of stuff because you don't know how you got there and who these people are. And so that's why I wanted to give so much time the last couple of weeks to looking at souls. So thanks for bearing with me and, and looking at this stuff. But I do want to just preach the, the thing I'm preaching this morning that's more of an exhortation than teaching is this. That how, what you speak about yourself matters. And what you say about your own heart matters. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Praise team. you, you can come forward. Let's pray and just invite the Lord to be the one who guards and speaks over our hearts. Father, we thank you again uh, for, for the story of Saul and how he became uh, just a beautiful example of walking with you. And we want to walk with you in similar ways, God. Not, I mean, most of us won't travel the world planting churches, but each of us is called to be confessors of Christ in the places, the spheres of influence that you call us. Every one of us is called to confess Christ um, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our communities, in our places of work, at the bank, at the grocery store. Like each of us has that call as people in Christ. And so we thank you for for the story and, um, and how you worked changing this man who was so deeply committed to persecuting Christians to becoming um, the apostle. And um, we thank you for doing the same sorts of things in our lives. God, we bless you and we pray and think in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.